This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is Web3 Breakdowns. Web3 Breakdowns is a series of conversations exploring innovation in the decentralized internet. Each episode, we will focus on a different topic. We will cover NFT projects, crypto assets, blockchain-based protocols, and businesses being built with Web3 architecture. We will talk to founders, artists, investors, and influencers to understand this emerging ecosystem. Come join us down the rabbit hole. To find more episodes, transcripts, and a library of content to continue your learning, visit joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. All right, Eric, we're back, baby. We're back. This is actually the one-year anniversary of our first quarterly update, and a lot's changed over the course of the year. But first quarter 2023, I was actually did a little wiper wash of my eyes when I saw the numbers. Bitcoin was up 68% in the first quarter and Ethereum was up 50%. Not too bad relative to a stock market that was up 7.5%. It feels quieter in my neck of the woods. Again, from the cheap seats, a bit of an outsider, a tourist in the crypto space. But how does it feel to you? Just general environment. It's hard to separate the crypto market from the broader market. But just general sentiment check coming out of first quarter 2023. How does it feel? I think it feels some sense of relief for people. I think there's a bit of a sense of pride or astonishment, definitely a rallying around people that feel like they're in it for certain reasons. We've talked in the past about tribalism. Why do people get into crypto in the first place and what do they feel that the needs are? So I think anytime there's a shock to a system, it's going to feel different. The fourth quarter, if we go back and listen to it, it just feels like stuff's blowing up everywhere for the analogy of just like, what's going to happen tomorrow? And every day you open up your Twitter feed, you're like, oh God, can this get worse? And then it does. And then in the first quarter, both on the banking front with the collapse of SVB, the closing of Signature, which I think we'll get into, the regulations, the negativity, there's just a lot that I think we do this sometimes where if you gave me all the headlines, I mean, you can do this with the markets, traditional markets, because I still participate in those, but not to this degree, where if you gave me all the headlines and you said Silvergate and Signature would be gone, that the regulators would be talking about all of these aggressive positionings, that FTX disappeared, there's rumors flying around, you'd be like, all right, pick the price. You would not pick the prices that you just picked. And I think what that does is it gives a lot of conviction to people who already had it, but that's not really the part that's interesting. What I find more interesting is the traditional people calling me who in the fourth quarter, like, Eric, you want to like come back and do the normal stuff like full time? Why are you spending so much time in the space? And now the first quarter, it's like, shit, I thought we were done with this. I thought I could just move on. And the way it's held up in spite of that, to me, that's the biggest first quarter takeaway. 
that if you would give someone those headlines, you'd have Bitcoin at 5,000 and ETH at a couple hundred bucks, not where it is today. Yeah. I think to say that they're alive is an understatement. It's not this barely breathing and still have a pulse. They are actually hanging in quite well relative to where they were even at the highs. The percentage declines, yes, they're stark and they're drastic. But you compare it to the names in the market, it's not a shitco, for lack of a better term. It's a business that had a high multiple that maybe has been cut in half. But I think there's a lot of great businesses, market caps of 20 to $80 billion tech companies that are in the same camp and not penny stocks by any means. You brought up Signature Bank, who, along with Silicon Valley Bank, went into receivership in the first quarter. And I think there is a difference between individual bad actors, like we saw in 2022, who can bring down funds and really shake up a system. But when you have a systemic banking crisis and banks going into receivership, those are key to the infrastructure of everything, and particularly crypto as well. So what do you see as the fallout from that, particularly Signature Bank, and to the extent that it plays a role, Silicon Valley Bank? You joked before it. There's Silvergate, Silicon Valley, and Signature. So maybe just don't name your bank an ass. But in seriousness, I think if you just take a step back and think about banking as a business model, it's a very risky business model. And I don't necessarily think people have as great of an appreciation because banks are trying to promote safety, which is really at the core of the issue. So my son and I were talking about banking. I was trying to explain this to him. And I said that even though banks are made out of bricks, maybe a better analogy is to think of them made out of wood. And the reason is when you create a loan, or an asset on a bank, you're immediately creating risk in the sense that you have a deposit and you have a liability and it's reversed for a bank. At any moment, that depositor can come and say, give me my money back. And if you just think about a really simple transaction, you gave me money and then I levered it up because of banking requirements of how much capital I can have, which we're not gonna get into, but I, I lent someone money for their house. Well, their house is a 30-year mortgage, you want your money back. So as long as everyone just doesn't ask for their money, it's fine. And I think before we get into the banking crisis, Every time there's a crisis, whether it's 08 or this mini banking crisis that we just had, I like looking back to try to find like what was the cause and effect. And you can't always do it. But in this case, I do think that there's issues that banks rely on interest rates. And when the Federal Reserve has pushed interest rates down to an artificially low level, you get all sorts of weird behavior. And since 2008, I feel like the minute the Federal Reserve started doing quantitative easing, Everyone in the fixed income market broadly, and even larger investors, were like, this is going to break something. And at first, if you remember, there was a Wall Street Journal essay with some of the best investors in the world calling for hyperinflation. And then every year after that, they were ridiculed because it didn't happen. The Fed had it under control. The Fed could print as the reserve currency. Essentially, they could print as much money as they wanted. Even that became a debate, is holding all of your assets actually printing. There's so many of these debates. So I think that... Over time, there was a question of what would happen. And this is one of the first casualties of what could happen, which is that when rates are really low, people take more risk. Silicon Valley was a bank for founders, startups, entrepreneurs. And as venture capital, as a risky asset class grew, they were telling their entrepreneurs to use this bank. So this bank's deposits ballooned. So back to that wooden structure, as interest rates are low, that wood turns a little bit more into tinder. And because the bank is actually riskier, nobody really understands it to the same level, though. And back to that point of like, what does a bank represent is safety and security. This is just an all banking thing. Any bank can have a run. And if a bank had a run, it will fail without someone intervening. That's 
how I think about the banking space. And the reason why we don't have runs every day is in general, we're not worried. In this case, there were reasons to get worried about Silicon Valley Bank in the fact that they're drowning in deposits. As all that money flew into them, they had to make a decision. How much risk do we want to take? Because we are a for-profit company or a corporation, we have shareholders. How do we want to generate returns? They can generate returns through two ways. They can either take credit risk or interest rate risk. Credit risk was what the banks did in 08. They lent to things that they shouldn't have lent to that were extremely risky and they wrapped them with higher quality. In this case, it was, we're not going to buy low quality. We're going to play with interest rate sensitivity. So they bought treasuries, mortgage-backed securities, things that had a longer maturity. The problem when you do this is from a risk management standpoint, how much do you hedge, how much risk do you take off the books? And this is where Silicon Valley failed miserably and their responsibility of looking over the balance sheet. And it's a trade-off. Everything's a trade-off of how fast do I want to generate returns? How much risk do I want to take? How much am I willing to stomach to try to keep those deposits coming in? But when people throw around the word Ponzi, it really is a hard word to throw out. I think of like truly a malicious actor who came up with a fake business because when you talk about relying on confidence, it's one of these things where like, well, so long as deposits keep flowing in and so long as everyone's okay, you don't really have to worry how that stuff is positioned. What happened here is as the Fed went from zero rates and raised really rapidly, the bonds on Silicon Valley's balance sheet fell. And they fell dramatically because of an accounting rule, which gives the banks the ability to say, I'm never going to sell that stuff. So if I'm never going to sell it, I don't even have to like take the loss until you do. This is the negative death spiral. Someone asks for money back. They actually have to sell some things they said they weren't going to sell. They then realize a loss. In summary, they sold about $20 billion. I think they took a $2 billion loss. They announced it to the public before they raised the capital. The bank CEO then brought in some of the largest venture capitalists, told them, don't panic. So we've got a couple of horrible things going on of poor risk management. Then we have doing the liquidation. Then we have telling your largest shareholders not to panic. And there's a lot of people pointing who started the bank run, you could point to the management team and say, you guys lit the match that burnt down the wooden bank. But in any case, that caused a run. And it was a severe run. And I think what made Silicon Valley Bank interesting for finance geeks or financial history is that it happened in 48 hours. People are connecting this to social media. It's just when banks have failed, like Lehman was in trouble as a broker dealer, but for like months, and it had been in trouble before, Bear Stearns have been in trouble. We had seen like big fire institutions get into trouble and then there's like negotiation and then a workout and then sometimes they blow up. This went from a Wednesday night press release to a Friday FDIC takeover. That was really rapid. It's interesting too when you compare it to a Lehman or a Bear Stearns where you knew that what they were underwriting had this insane risk. Once you started to peel back the onion and say, oh, this is somebody's sixth mortgage and it's being compiled with other people's sixth mortgage, and it's just being rated as not risky, but it absolutely is risky. Here, it was treasury notes. By the definition, they're risk-free security, except that it's risk-free if you're waiting for it in 30 years. The price fluctuations between now and then are drastically different. So it does feel like something that it happened so quickly, even though if you look back in January as they were publishing results and different things, you were seeing that they would have to take mark-to-market losses, just never something that you would think would pop up and actually be relevant. Yeah, it's one of those things where people will point to stuff all the time. I like to quote that, you know, it happens slow and then all at once. There's huge risks that we talk about. I was talking about the housing crisis 
at Fidelity starting in 05. It was a discussion and people lost their jobs for shorting the housing market in 05. They lost their job in 06 and 07. We talk about municipal bond pensions. These are huge problems. The government's inability to fund entitlements. These are huge topics that people in finance almost become desensitized to because they're like, yeah, yeah, we know. Like we know that there's a lot of bonds. And I think someone on Twitter wrote a whole paper about this months ago about the ultimate charity bond portfolios, how big they were. And all you had to do as a hedge fund manager who wanted an edge, like looking on the short side, would be sort by who had the greatest deposit runs during that low interest rate environment. And then say that likely that those deposits would flee and go the other way. The impetus for it all happening so quickly is the scary part. I think to get to your first question on Signature and Silvergate and how are those things related, if at all, they're very different to me, even though I think some of the regulators and politicians are putting them together. Silvergate and Signature specifically did have a huge part of the crypto market. And what they were doing is running a 24 by 7 market for people who are just used to your bank being open. If you ever want to send a wire, which people do from time to time, the Fed wire has to be open to do it. What's important about transferring money, and this is the part I really like about crypto rails, is the notion of counterparty risk and final settlement, which is a silly topic that doesn't matter until it's all that matters. And that when you send someone money, you buy a house and you want to send someone a lot of money, you really want to know, like, did it get there? Is the house mine? Like, what is the procedure to close the deal? In trading, now, you buy a house you know, once every several years for people or whatever, sometimes once in their life. When you're trading something like a bond, you're doing that every day, thousands of times. So settlement's a huge part of financial markets that's underappreciated. So in crypto, what's even more challenging is a 24 by 7 market. And what that means is that you're trying to trade an off-banking hour. So how do you get to final settlement? How do I send you money? And then I say, okay, the trade's done. So what these banks did is they opened up their accounting system to allow for people to debit and credit. So what that means is, let's say I wanted to do a $100 million trade with Circle, and I wanted to do dollars for USDC. I can't actually get my hands on my physical dollars. I can't take them out of the bank. But if we both had accounts at a Silvergate or a Signature that was running these 24 by 7 networks, we could do that trade with each other. Some part of the bank's technological stack or operations would be open 24-7 to make sure that trade was done. And then me and you could say, okay, the trade's been finalized. So you can see how that's a critical piece of infrastructure for the market to work 24-7 as if it's always getting final settlement. Silvergate was exposed as a large banking partner of FTX. So it began, there was a lot of credit concern about it and large partners began to walk away with it. And the bank decided to wind itself down in a regulatory manner to wind down the bank. And at that point, there was a lot of crypto is dangerous, crypto is dangerous to the banking sector, a lot of dancing on the grave of Silvergate. And this is where it's like all this stuff happened. So I think some people misconnected some dots. Silicon Valley happens, which we kind of walk through. It has nothing to do with crypto. It's a venture capital thing. So now a much larger bank goes under unrelated. Then the most weird part happened, in my opinion. And I desperately try not to be a conspiracy theorist. I don't think it helps anyone, doesn't help my process. But I can at least say as an analyst, sometimes you have unanswered questions like that didn't feel right or my spidey senses went off. So Silicon Valley has taken over on a Friday morning, which is weird. Usually it's 5 p.m. on Friday. It was done like 11. That people thought meant someone was going to buy it by Sunday. It doesn't. Sunday night, they announced that they're going to guarantee all deposits, a decision that the FDIC and Federal Reserve and Treasury had to make together. 
and introduce a new program. Again, this is where it's all a big belief system. The FDIC does not have actual dollars to backstop everyone. What they have is an insurance fund. So what they need to do is make sure that even though it's, I can't even say 100 years now, it seems to be like every 15-year crisis, that they can do something and then have enough force to stop it. So for the people that said like banks are keep running, it's possible. The question is, what would stop people from panicking? It's a very hard thing to say. The odd part is then in a sub footnote, they announced during Silicon Valley, I think maybe Monday morning, I forget the timing of it. We're backstopping all the deposits. We have the suit program and we're taking signature into receivership. And it just stunned people because I mean, the banks were bad on equities. You look at First Republic signature, everything looked negative. But what happened to Signature? So that was really weird because, again, Silvergate was out, now Signature. You kind of hobbled the crypto market either inadvertently or on purpose. People start spitting up stories of the government's attacking crypto. This is directly an attack. Nick Carter wrote a great piece called Choke Point 2.0 and kind of has been saying this as a concentrated effort. But then on top of it, Barney Frank, one of the authors of Dodd-Frank from 2008, is a board member of Signature. He comes out and says, our bank wasn't insolvent, which is why you have the right to take it under because you're afraid that there's going to be a run, but that this was a direct message to the crypto market for their crypto business. So whatever low conspiracy theory you had, it seemed to turn up as soon as he started talking. And now it's one of these things you're probably not going to know for two to three years what happens next. Someone's going to sue and say that the government wrongfully took it under and that their equity was hurt. So, you know, regulatory takings lawsuits to say, you can't just put something out of business without evidence or reason. And so the New York DFS and the regulators are going to have to show this is why we did it. And it wasn't because we just didn't like them. It's not a reason to put a bank in a receivership. Do these 24-7 markets still exist in any form? Can you actually use the capabilities that Signature and Silvergate were offering elsewhere or... The signature and its new existence still offer some of those capabilities before? How much of like a long-term hamper on the industry does this create? So on signature to end the story there, they were bought out of receivership, something that can happen, but the crypto assets were not. Another weird part of the story. So if you think about it, any bank can do this. That's not the magic. They could have it be run 24-7. The magic is building APIs, the technology layer that lets you do this. And if you think about it, it's not a bad business model. You're making money on the nights and weekends when your bank's not open and you're just opening up your accounting. So the risk is that as long as the players are AML and KYC, they've gone through all the banking standards, all you're saying is you're going to have uninsured deposits, what every bank wants, that's going to sit in cash, presumably, and you're going to move from party A to party B. Now, they're just using the accounting part of the bank from a transactional standpoint. I was surprised that the signature IP if I was a private equity firm, I would have bought that immediately because why wouldn't all banks want that? And you could say that like, you know, the Fed's working on going to 24 by seven at some point in the future. We'll see when that really comes to fruition or how it works. But I just think the private sector building the APIs to do that were valuable. So that's the end of signature. Other banks have begun to step into the fray. I think Cross River Bank's one of them. And this gets to a bigger macro thing of why would you even do this business? So there's two parts. One is, the giant sucking sound you hear of all the bank deposits going to JP Morgan. That in a crisis, you're going to get the exact wrong thing you want, which is coming out of 08. What we didn't want, or what I thought we didn't want, was we didn't want companies that were too big to fail. 
The way companies become too big to fail is they destroy all the competition. So when you have regional banks, that gives diversity to the system. They're not great. It's not like a small bank can compete with JP Morgan, but having lots of them is a good thing, I think, for the economy. It's a good thing for society. So a bank on the West Coast doesn't have to understand a bank in the middle of the country. You can know your banker. People might think it's antiquated and silly, but I think it's fundamentally important. And also something that we don't talk about enough anymore is how dangerous it is for JP Morgan to get bigger every day. And so the small banks thinking of like, oh my God, there's billions of dollars of deposits looking for a home. This is an opportunity. And this is an opportunity to stave off the JP Morgan either acquiring you or putting you out of business. I think it was Modest Proposal who had a great quote about this. Do you remember it? The way you make big banks even bigger is to let them buy up all the smaller banks. And the other way you make big banks bigger is to not let them buy up all of the smaller banks, which was perfectly said. (laughs) I thought he nailed that. And to me, that's what's going on right now. So this is an opportunity to get a huge amount of deposits that the big banks cannot do and won't do and don't need to do. That's the other reason. When big banks are the only ones in charge, who lends money to an entrepreneur? Who says, oh, like who wants to go? You just got $5 million from a venture capitalist. Do banks want that money right now? So if you end up in a very risk-averse banking sector, this is again, like the banks are risky, even though we want them to be safe. It's this like tension. We want them to extend credit to make the economy go. And then when the economy is overheating, we want to try to use interest rates to pull that back. So yes, smaller banks are jumping into the opportunity set because they need to find deposits. So that's a positive option. But then you have the regulatory concerns over if Barney Fank's right and my federal regulator is now going to come in and start asking way more questions about me doing this business, which I think is good and safe and wants data. And they just keep requesting us either through attrition by battle. This is kind of like the fear back in the day with any of the regulations that what you do is that by quote unquote, making the system safer, you just protect the incumbents who have teams of lawyers that can file reams of documents. And a little bank is like, I don't have that. So then back to Modest's thing, just they'll all slowly fail, sadly. So yes, people are entering the fray, which is good. I think more and more people will enter it because there's a battle for deposits. But I think there's still a regulatory concern over, do I want to come out and say that and announce that this is a diversifying thing to my balance sheet, how equity holders respond, how will bondholders respond. By the way, the notion that the headline is like, oh, we're not poaching or going after it. The banks both want all of those deposits and they don't want the regulatory scrutiny that's going to come from it because it's going to end up with a nationalized banking sector where I hope we don't end up there. But it's the scariest thing is that, yeah, you had this explosion, which was bad. And now everyone feels calm about it because the government says we're going to keep doing this. But And this gets a little bit back to that question of like, 14 years ago, when the crisis happened, I understood the size and strength of the bank and the country of the Federal Reserve being the lender of last resort and needing to step in because of how mangled the financial system had been. And it was that experience that made me a complete doubter of cryptocurrency and Bitcoin. Because I'm like, you don't understand how bad this was. And you have to have a front row seat to realize that money as you know it was going to shut down you would need the National Guard, that this was going to be really, really bad. And the government stepped in after not an easy battle and got this thing. And then I saw the view of like, okay, we're highly productive. We've got all this technology. And even today we have ChatGBT. And I would say like, I don't know where these jobs are going to come from. This inflation you're all worried about getting paid more. I'd be looking at my company with 50,000 to 300,000 people and being like, 
what are we going to need? Like 10,000 to 20,000? It's not going to replace all of us, but it's going to replace some of us. So I'm like, that's deflationary. Progress is inevitable. And the one question I had was like, but what if the government didn't really care about debt? So it was like 2015. And I was at this conference that's called these like Fed shadow banking meetings, where it's like former Fed officials and Fed types talking about MMT, modern monetary theory. But you don't have to worry about summary, go read on Wikipedia. You don't worry about managing interest rates, which is what the Fed does. You basically manage taxation to slow and cool the economy more directly. So if the economy was really hot right now, if you move the marginal tax rate to 80%, then people would stop spending money because the government would take it away from them. And then if the economy stalled, you'd lower the tax rate to zero and everyone would be like, oh, I have all this money. So it was a more direct impact. But the idea was that our debt and interest rates wouldn't matter. And it's got this like inherent flaw that someone's going to buy the debt. <laughs> and everyone thought it was crazy and laughed at it. And now I see a state where it's like, Want to fund a war? Go for it. Want to fund the banking sector? Go for it. How big is the FDIC? So there's 18 trillion. You want to throw that on the balance sheet? It just gets to a point where like, I joked, it was Dow six years ago, of this game of like, okay, 5 trillion, 7 trillion, 10 trillion, 20 trillion. Let's just have a thought experiment. If the United States government had $100 trillion of debt, would that be a problem? Is it 200 trillion? Exactly what number do you think there's a breaking point? And I would have said before, we would never even come close to it. That's why we're in the position we are, but it doesn't feel like we're going the other way. And every time you have a crisis, whatever nods their heads and says it's fine, it's fine based on the belief. And so that alone, and this kind of gets to this point when we can relate back to like crypto is like this first quarter was this moment where when a shock happens, like one of the best things I've heard is specifically on Bitcoin, and we can move to Ethereum as just a different perspective or lens, and it's not financial advice, it's just how the market looks at it, is that if you think a system is going to be broken somehow, whether it's a country or banking system that's going to have an economic crisis, Bitcoin is an interesting asset. This is where people, I think, miss. It's not that Bitcoin is a hedge on inflation. Hyperinflation is a symptom of a broken economic system. A banking run is a system of a broken financial system. And when that stuff happens, you might just think, just in case. And I'm talking to people who have wealth, where they're like, I don't think the United States is going to collapse. I don't think we're going to lose the reserve currency. I don't think anything that's going to happen. I'm just saying a bunch of other people might think that's going to happen. And this might be the thing that people want to go to, just like they went to gold. So I think the reason why the first quarter was so important is Bitcoin started to act like a digital form of gold. And for people that would never buy gold, would never buy gold bars, that aren't building bunkers, but just economically savvy, they're like, uh, maybe I'll have a little. And that just kind of introduces the exposure. I think what you mentioned there is really interesting too from the United States level, because when you have a debt crisis within a country, it's of national interest to solve that problem. If you have a debt crisis at the national level, is it a global issue? Which it is 100% a global issue, but you're leaving it in the hands of other countries. Really, at the end of the day, that comes down to China's belief the various European Union countries and other countries and their national interests. And you just hope at the end of the day that there's this higher level view. But I can understand if people would fear that that might not be the case longer term. I ask this question when people go down the crypto rabbit hole, it's not backed by anything. They get all upset. And I say like, well, let's say US dollar backed by it. Then they'll tell me the world's largest military, an F-35 and a bomb in your house. I'm like, 
Well, let me tell you about this other thing called bond vigilantes. You cannot bring the world's military to get people to buy your bonds. So it really becomes this interest rate spike of a concern that could really hobble your economy away. Now, there's all sorts of things. Again, it is a reserve currency. It is a trading of how we've always done it. But, and Dalio's book is probably the best on this that I've read, is like you do have economic rise and falls of countries. And again, I'm not predicting it or saying that that's how I'm positioning myself. What I'm thinking is the concern, and I think it was actually Mitt Romney had a little clip on this that I thought was the best of just, if we can't talk about higher taxes or entitlements, if stuff's off the table, all you're really saying is that your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren are going to pay for this generation's benefits. And that's really what you're doing is so long as this country wants to go down this path. And I think Druckenmiller is excellent on this. I think Dalio is excellent on it. I think that Romney had the best political thing. I'm not political. I'm trying not to be. It's a political issue is that the country will continue to accrue debt and that will go higher and higher. And that's going to affect the monetary system. And the Fed has a magical wand that they want to wave at stuff. So they just waved it. You can do this. This is why it's very powerful. But I just worry that if you continue to do that, you get to a point where that wand loses its power. Think about this again. If SVB wasn't bailed out, is First Republic around or any of these other regional banks around? It's a confidence game. So if you believe the thesis that there are wooden buildings and a fire breaks out, I don't know what's going to stop them. It does bring up a good popular topic or something that caught the zeitgeist, which was Balaji making this bet. And I think a lot of what he was betting on was related to what you were just referencing there. But I think to capture what it was, and you might be able to summarize it better than even I can, we can debate whether it's a marketing scheme. You know, you understand that the payoff is not necessarily worth the pure ROI in dollars and cents for the bet he's making. Nobody would ever make that bet. But just like outline what his thesis is here and what he's doing with this, whether we call it publicity stunt, whatever you want to classify it as. This guy, James Matlock on Twitter says, I'm paraphrasing, I bet a million dollars the United States will never ever experience hyperinflation. Kind of an odd statement, but wouldn't matter. Except when Balaji quote tweets you and says like, you're done, the bet's on. So Balaji, who is very bright and was in the science field. He then was the chief technology of Coinbase. He was a professor at Stanford. He's very, very bright. He's extremely well-read. He was an early Bitcoin adopter. Some people speculate he might be one of the largest Bitcoin holders. So he makes this bet and he says, I'll bet you a million dollars in 90 days. And it's essentially that Bitcoin will hit a million dollar dollar price in this really tight window. So basically he's betting that Bitcoin's going to hit a million dollars in 90 days. Then someone else bets them. So that's like a $2 million bet. And they're some details you can go read about, but essentially it makes this big bet. And people think he's crazy. I just straight up think it's the best media ever. I wrote a tweet about how a Super Bowl ad for 30 seconds cost $7 million. Apology has paid $2 million. Every news article wants to talk to him, write letters about him, write papers. So he got a lot of attention for this bet. And he got a lot of people asking about it. It's like what I would call my friends that are outside Twitter, outside crypto, are like, did you hear about this million dollar Bitcoin thing? Like it did the effect you wanted. And I think that that was probably the goal is what I like to think. There's this other thing I would just bring into it of anytime I've seen someone make a huge mega call, John Paulson, Michael Berry, Meredith Whitney, for the most part, when someone makes a mega call, their next mega call is a lot of pressure because I know 10 people that lost their job short in the housing market in 05, 06, 07, 
someone's going to do it. It wasn't like a secret that nobody knew. You could be wrong longer than you could stay solvent. So apology, I may be saying his name wrong. I apologize. He had a tweet thread on COVID. That was early and very right. Very early, very right. When you read it, you're like, this guy's crazy. He's telling me we're going to shut down the world economy. Everyone's going to be wearing masks. Guy's nuts. And then several months later, we shut down the world economy and everyone's wearing masks. I'm like, damn. So I appreciate people that are out on the frontier at least saying stuff. And I also like the fact that when he puts comments on Twitter, this is the part I do like about Twitter. We joked off the air of like the hellscape versus wonderful. It's like he says something about the Chinese banking system and some Chinese banking analyst responds with like data and like they dispute it. And I think that's great. But I think that this was more of a stunt than it was an actual belief. I mean, he might really believe it. That's going to happen. It's just an interesting way to go about it. But it got a lot of attention. Yeah. Sam Hinkey, when Balaji first came on the scene, he was on Tim Ferriss after he had made the COVID call. So he made the COVID call in January, I believe. So January before the March that everything really shut down. And Sam said, before your team decides whether they like Balaji or not, I'd encourage you to consider his ideas one by one and not determine whether you're going to be on Team Balaji, but just whether he's right and if you're willing to bet that he's wrong. So I think it's well said because would I bet against him for a million dollars for Bitcoin to hit a million dollars? I would probably bet against him there. But you know, in the back of your head, like with all the things there, it is one hell of a publicity stunt. And whatever happens from here is going to be interesting. I like Sam's analysis of it because it doesn't take it all away. The credibility he has, if he wrote a paper tomorrow, if he was on a podcast, I would listen to it immediately because I just don't think there's enough people like that who are thinking that deeply and trying to put out their thoughts and are willing to take the criticism and the heat without the ego and the fragility of getting mad and blocking people because they disagree with them. Like he generally will go back and forth with people. It feels the thing that I wanted to have in academia of the respectful challenge. It's not always respectful, especially on Twitter, but he's getting into it by saying, like, I read this, this, and this, and this is what I think. All seems reasonable. I think one of the hard parts, though, with someone like Balaji is that in Sam's note, I didn't read it, but there's just caution with anybody. And when you read something where they're so compelling, and they feel so much conviction. I think some people just take that as like, oh, this is truth. He's throwing his ideas out in a very strong way, but it's up to you to like, that's honestly good advice for everyone. Like, This is a problem with Twitter and the place we're in. Ideas come out and they're like, oh, that guy's an idiot. He got that thing wrong. So this must be wrong or. That person's right. So now they're always right. It's just, it's foolish. Transitioning a bit. I think we've covered Bitcoin pretty well. Ethereum doesn't seem to get nearly as much coverage anymore. We had a lot of the big headlines with the merge. And from everything that I know, we've seen some competitors come up, Solana, Cardano, other things where you're just taking a different approach to the same actual model, I guess. Where do we stand there? You know, it's hung in in terms of price. It does still feel like Bitcoin and Ethereum, at least for me, again, cheap seats, like the two standouts, the two that I'm going to monitor. And there's not going to be a third until someone decides or I decide there is. But just checking in on that, where would you say we stand on Ethereum? It's funny you say that. This shows me how way deep you are. It's actually a huge week for Ethereum because this thing, uh, the Shanghai fork just happened. Oh, unstaking your assets, but it's an Ethereum thing. During the first quarter, what you saw was this point on Bitcoin, which we talked about is that in a moment of instability, Bitcoin performs really well. So there's a ratio you can look at, which is the ETH-BTC ratio of how they trade with each other. 
it's an interesting number. It's bounced around. You know, it usually ranges just for rough numbers between five and seven percent, but they're big numbers. So Bitcoin really outperformed Ethereum. And there's a cycle that happens where Bitcoin does well. And then the people who are more traders in the market, they'll rotate into Ethereum and then they'll rotate into riskier assets. And then the market does poorly. And then Bitcoin does well. And it looks just like the stuff that we would trade of a flight to quality. I know that crypto isn't like a quality asset for many. It's a risky asset. However, there's patterns that emerge, just like you have a flight from high yield to corporates to treasuries. And you just see this rotation that when corporates catch a bid, high yield does better and a sell-off, vice versa. So Ethereum has started to do really well, but there is a fundamental story there that you're able to now unstake your ETH. So when we had the merge, we had two separate chains, the proof of stake, proof of work. They merged into one, which is proof of stake. However, to get that proof of stake running in the first place, they needed people to stake. So you could put money in, but you couldn't take money out. So people that dislike Ethereum, like this is ridiculous. So now you have several, I don't know the total billions, but billions of dollars that were staked on Ethereum. And now you have the upgrade that happened this week was going to allow people to unstake. So there was this theory of, oh my God, these people have been making money on staking and providing security to the network for the first time in several years, they could take their money off. That's going to cause essentially an unlock. People are going to take that Ethereum and then they're going to sell it in the market. And that's going to be a negative catalyst. There's two reasons why that's kind of ridiculous. Well, three. The first is that people who are committed to the network that really are interested truly in the technological breakthrough and the infrastructure are going to stake as missionaries. The second is for the financial players that we know better, if you have a large position, you can hedge it. You can sell it to someone else, OTC. You can be short in futures markets. There are sophisticated investors. You're not going to have $500 million locked up on hedge if you're worried about that part of it. And then the final thing, which I think people are surprised about, is now you can stake and unstake. So I think there's a lot of people that were wanted to stake on the network and liked the idea of using economics to provide a security blanket, but they were like, I can't lock up this money not knowing what I can take it out, but I really want to stake directly on the network. And now you can. So Ethereum's done really well through this period. And I think that's probably one of the better narratives around it is that you had to kind of understand the system, understand the fundamentals that were going on to have an appreciation for how it may or may not perform during this period. And in terms of building on Ethereum, has anything changed there just in terms of where people have flocked? I know Solana was certainly seemed like it was a competitor at a certain point. And I don't know how much to use their currency as a proxy, but it's fallen off quite a bit. Where Ethereum came from was people looked at Bitcoin and said, could we do more? And then you got Ethereum. And then people got Ethereum and said, can we do more? And how do we do it? So you're in a cycle where people like Solana was trying to be this high frequency chain. And for us, one of the areas we explore on Web3 breakdowns that I'm super fascinated about, I know you are, is this idea of the crypto rails and using crypto as a settlement layer, which is definitely going to happen. The financial space wants it. It will get there. It's just a matter of how much time. So Solana started to hold itself out as a chain that could potentially handle the amount of transactions you would need for a more modern finance. The challenge was it was so closely associated with FTX and it's so tied up its funding and its mechanism with this other thing as like this high frequency. I think that was one of the biggest downfalls to it. And then, like anything, there's a network effect. If people are building there, that builds it up. If people aren't or people are worried, like if you're a developer, I love meeting with developers to ask them this. You have an idea and you really want to bring it to market. One question is like, oh, which chain can handle the idea? But the other is like, which chain is going to be there? Am I going to have to deal with a migration issue? Am I going to have to move from one chain to another? I want to build chain agnostic. It's a hard problem to solve. So I think that 
like anything, there's a community of developers who really believe in Solana and really think that they can do higher transactions per second in a secure and scalable way. You've got stuff like Monad coming out, trying to say, we have a new way. I think this is great. I love the experimentation, competitiveness, and innovation. You'll see that people like the idea of a decentralized ledger as a store of information. I think over time, we'll use them for a variety of different things. And just like you don't know the nuances between Google Cloud, Amazon Web Services, and Azure, you're not going to really know or care about the differences. People are going to run on one place versus run on another for different things. Polygon has done really well carving out a niche for itself that it does lower security, higher transaction speed, but on Ethereum. So it gets the benefit of it. They found a path. So I think what you'll see is certain chains find certain niches and different verticals that might make sense. So that's what I think you're seeing here is it was associated with something that did poorly, and then people might give up on it, not understanding. You can look at the data analytics, there's still people building on Solana today. Interesting. And that makes a lot of sense just in terms of niches. I do want to pick your brain on NFTs because you had this huge craze. And to me, I have that degenerate gene, a collector gene, where it feels like this is actually the right time, where if I am just collecting these almost like art, like a long-term investment, something that's cool, because I don't even believe I know that 20 years from now, 30 years from now, some of these original generation NFTs are going to be like artwork was to others from 100 years ago, 50 years ago, et cetera. So like I that is a strongly held, not belief, that's just a fact, and I'm not willing to change my mind. But when I scan the environment, I mean, you've seen celebrities, it seems like they've moved out or they have less association with them. It actually doesn't feel like the price changes have been as drastic as I would have expected to. And I am a total tourist waiting to get picked off. But just from like an environmental perspective, and if you were a curator of NFT art for others, how would you describe the environment? Is it a buyer's market? I think for the long term, if you have that thesis that this is going to end up in the MoMA, which is something I agree with, and it's my feeling about it, then yes. It's always easier to answer the question when you extend the time horizon, because if you have that held belief that in the long term it will be, then that's easier. One of the things about crypto is it like feels like it's going through financial history without knowing about financial history just a little bit faster. Like, oh, pump and dump schemes, insider trading, let's play for like bid-side liquidity. Like right now we're in the bid-side liquidity thing where this new app called Blur was launched. It was a new OpenSea was the marketplace where most NFTs were traded. It was dominant. And so like that was interesting because you'd say like, look, this is all open source. How can someone become dominant? But it, it was the marketplace that most people traded on. They paid royalties out to creators. It wasn't even the first mover advantage. If you gateway was, but it became very popular. Then Blur gets spun up. Way more trader, speculator, DGen focus. Like you would feel very comfortable on the platform because it looks more like a Bloomberg terminal than it does like pictures. Because it's not about the pictures. It's literally about saying there's a token, and the more you trade, the more bids you have outstanding at that top bid price will pay. So it looks a lot like paying for bid side liquidity which exchanges and ATSs do, because the more liquidity, the more action, the more action, the more trades, and exchanges get paid on volume. So it's not like a revolutionary idea, but what it did is it got weird behavior where people are buying like 98 punks. And what they're doing is, then they learned about how you spoof and crush bids. So like, there's a ton of ex-trade five people in there that are like doing this. There's discords about it where you're like, oh my God, someone looks like they're bidding, which moves the price up. Then a bunch of people have bids out and you go to sleep and all of your bids get hit. So 
So you wake up, you're like, I didn't really want to own this stuff. I was trying to farm the token. So that's the state of NFTs right now. I love this, by the way. I love this so much. (laughs) So that's what's happening right now is that you can trade and scale NFTs and farm this other liquidity for bid side liquidity, which TradeFi people will like find hilarious. But that leads to like odd behavior where you're like, if you follow it, and there's a great guy on Twitter. I'll put his name in the show notes because I just forgot. He had a Discord. He just started analyzing this. He was putting out commentary every day. There's specific traders. He was calling them out. And he was like, Franklin is bored, just picked up 50 apes. Now he like doesn't realize it. He must have gone to bed. Like He figured out where people were sleeping based on what would happen. And I'm like, how in name are they putting up this much capital at risk in this way to make a million bucks to make like 10 grand? I'm like, I don't know, man. Not my game. They're just huge moves. They really liquefied NFTs. In general, so there's the art space, which is a little bit separate than that specific space. And the reason why is that in art, there could be less numbers of something like 500 or 100 as opposed to like the 10,000 or, or higher collections. This is the thing about art. I think this is a fun game for anyone to play with children of the ages between, I would say, four and 10 years old. Pull up a Rothko and play this game called art or not, or famous art, especially if, they get, if they're already interested in like money or something like, is this expensive? Would you pay for this? And say like Rothko, painting or not. Now, I recently learned actually through Andrew Huberman on the eye why Rothkos are interesting. But to my naive, foolish, uneducated self, I don't know. I looked like something my kids would draw. Jackson Pollock. Jackson Pollock. I showed them a picture of the Andy Warhol Campbell soup. I'm like, is this art? So like, there's a whole separate thing there. And so by being in the space and by seeing the people who collect different things, there's no doubt. I have done this for other people of friends who are wealthy, who are building collections. It's like true, like, have art and spend money. We're like, okay, Eric, I want to have a little bit of this. What should I buy? And there's places to steer them to where it's just got to be coming a thing of like, okay, it might not go from $1 to a million dollars, but like over time, that might be a thing that people that care and want to own about. The best thing is watching the liquidity. I can tell you as the price of Ethereum goes up and those people who have crypto wealth have more money, they usually end up following to buy the things that they can invest in or demonstrate that. This is a trivia. If you had to guess, I bought an NFT this quarter, and you have to guess what it is. It is probably the most stereotypical thing that a guy that worked in finance could buy. And the person has a tie to traditional art. Oh, man. Most stereotype finance thing. Damien Hurst. Bingo. The currency. Bingo. Well done. (laughs) Well done. I did it. How messed up is that? That I can do that. I'm proud of you. I'm impressed. I'm impressed. I'm proud of you. That's a good one. Can't see in like 20 to 25 years how. And I don't know other artists, but I respect Damien Hurst because he pulled one over on me with this Netflix documentary he did for one of his special exhibitions where I didn't realize it was a mockumentary the entire time. And I'm like, this is fucking crazy. And I always said I would buy like a piece of his art if I ever really crushed it. So I figured this is a happy medium. Here you go. Well, congratulations on crushing it. I thought that that would be more fun. The Damien Hurst story is he did 10,000 real paintings, where there's little dots. Then he put that in a vault. Then he issued 10,000 digital images of those art. And then a year later, you would have to decide, did you want to burn your NFT to get the physical Damien Hurst? And that currency, this is what I love about NFTs in a way, is like Warhol or whatever, artists play with culture, but the idea of gamifying it in this way 
I loved. So I think that's a great one. And honestly, that's an easy one to put in people's portfolios that have the wealth to afford. It's not cheap or anything. But if someone wants something, that's a lot easier than buying a Fidenza or a Ringer or a CryptoPunk or a Bored Ape or anything. Exactly. Gen, by heart. Well, I was proud of you. <laughs> now we got to get you a, a thing on the wall to put it up there. Exactly. By the way, if you show that to a kid and play my game, they're definitely not going to say it's art. Exactly. <laughs> I say stereotypical because I'm pretty sure Damien Hurst is just like taking advantage of hedge funders and private equity guys for years with like the shark and formaldehyde. Yeah. It's brilliant. And I kind of just respect him for it because he's playing the capitalism game against capitalists and the most extreme capitalists. So got to respect him for that. Well, awesome, Eric. These are always fun. I appreciate you doing this as always. And on to another excellent quarter ahead. Thanks, Pat. To find more episodes of Breakdowns or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. 